there were so many elements in a ski race uh, that can affect you just given the outdoor nature of it and, and the unpredictability of it. Kind of like golf. Kind of like golf. But at the same time, if you can, you know, be okay with it going sideways, it ultimately, I think, increases your chances for success, which is just kind of this backwards way of thinking. It's very difficult to uh, overcome that. And even at my highest level in ski racing, I, I would never say that I mastered that ability. Welcome to the Pure Golf Collective. We are your hosts, Carter Bennett and John Roy. Together through this, we bring a new lens on themes of development, performance, and process. The idea of the collective is to investigate and celebrate the intrinsic values of golfers and the obsession to the purity of the game. The collective is not just who we hear on this podcast, but any person invested into growth and connection to golf. We are golfers celebrating all that is pure in the game we love. And welcome back to the Pure Golf Collective. This week, we got an exciting episode where we're sitting down with two-time Olympian Phil Brown. Before we get into that, just want to spread a message and thoughts and prayers to Tiger Woods and his family and his team. Very scary incident that he has gone through and uh, we wish him well in his recovery moving forward. On a little bit lighter note, last weekend at the Genesis Invitational, Max Homa came out with a very cool victory. Not only did Max win in a playoff, But Max has been on my radar for a number of months now. And the most interesting thing about Max is that he's really embraced this idea of being the happy guy, the the appreciation and the joy that competition and the game of golf brings him. I think it was from David Ogren who picked up on that same idea that you're referencing, I thought, which is cool. So just to to say, I, I, I didn't know that about Max either, that he was resigned to happiness as his approach to skill development, you know, and I thought that that's a really cool sort of watershed moment for a lot of athletes, right? The day you learn to give in in order to gain more. Um, And there's a sort of a funny interplay there between like you're built with a, a work ethic and a sort of a process of like trying your very hardest at all times Um, which doesn't necessarily get you to the promised land. Um, And then the day you kind of let in on that and say, you know what, I'm going to try a different process. I'm going to try a process that's not necessarily that I'm not trying, but that I'm like approaching this with a joy and a happiness and a gratitude, as you would say, and, and so on. Um, And that somehow that that can actually get us further down the path is, uh, is kind of nice to hear, as you're saying, it's nice that people are kind of breaking through on that, uh, on that level. We're starting to see more and more of those interviews after rounds. McElroy seems to stand for something like that as well these days, eh? that sort Absolutely. of carelessness or freedom that comes from playing the game you love and taking what comes as it is, as opposed to this like ridiculous grind from a, from essentially a Greek God that is unapproachable for all of humanity, right? Like it's, it's kind of neat to see people that are just regular dudes who are vulnerable, missing putts, but still winning, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff is, is a more accurate representation perhaps of the sport, which is 
not the one we usually see on TV and highlight reels and, and on sports desk and all of that kind of stuff, right. Where everyone makes every putt and that's how they win. And you know, that's what the goal of the game is. And that's not really what a true shot experience is. Shot experiences are embedded with vulnerability, this actual true deep knowledge that, you know what, I do miss this. That is a possibility right here. Absolutely. It is a game of misses. And I think all golfers have heard that expression before, but how much they believe it and practice it is, uh, is kind of funny to watch. And what's cool in this uh, upcoming discussion with Phil is he kind of uh, alludes to the idea that there is lots of variability in the game and mistakes are only part of the experience. It's not something that we can expect to just not occur in our time, whether it's uh, out on the golf course or on the ski hill. Variability is constantly or consistently part of our experience. Yeah, I thought there was two really neat angles that you know, we're definite continuations from our last episode of uh, the shot experience. Uh, one, when he describes the process of mastery and he didn't use these words, but he's sort of, he's, he was trying to find a way to say that mastery is a verb and not a noun. It's not something you get to. It's not something you're given. You are now a master. You have a black belt. You know, it, it was, it's this like never ending process of chaos. You don't know what you're going to get next. You need to build as an athlete a toolbox that allows you to deal with whatever comes at you and and you don't know what's going to come at you although you can do your best to manage and strategize and predict what will likely come about it's going to rain today and you know those type of surface variables but the reality of the chaos of our of our experiences of things uh, a race or a shot the reality that that is always going to be random um, and different the same way if you uh, I know Michael Hebron likes to say that you know you can't bake a pie the same way twice you know, even though you've got the same recipe and you've got the same ingredients, the reality is no pie will be the same and no shot experience will be the same and no ski route will be the same, even though he's training time and time again that day. Um, each of them is slightly different. And so this idea that mastery is an ever, ever-changing progress as opposed to a thing we get or a thing we try to grab, um, I thought that was a sort of one cool angle of it. And the idea that we're um, embedded in this chaotic environment wherein there, I think when you asked him, you know, what do you love about golf or what's the, what's the most important thing about golf? He, he was arguing that, you know, there, because there's no right answer, it's the same as in skiing. You can watch a ski race and notice that they all have subtle differences or even in some cases, obvious differences. They all have different styles and they all get down the hill the same, uh, same time roughly. Um, so there's so many ways to do it. Um, the same is true with a shot experience. You know, everyone has their own style and, and, and just like a shot experience and even in your own shot experiences, every one of them will be slightly different, let alone on a driver range, everyone's swing is slightly different. But to the uninitiated, you could go to a tour event and maybe think that everyone is swinging kind of the same. Um, but I, I beg to differ and I've been there a lot with, with young players and so on. And, and I think one of the striking things that you notice when you watch a professional golf event, the actual major differences, you could argue that the most idiosyncratic golf swings have taken place at the highest echelons of the sport. And that when you start sliding down the mountain a little bit into the more conventional mini tours, let's say, and so on, that's when you'll start seeing a little bit more, everyone looks the same. But for the players who make it, you know, all the way down, all the way to the end or towards the end, there is this remarkable idiosyncrasy, almost as if they've got like quirks that they own as opposed to uh, a model that they follow. Uh, but again, that's a narrative that I like to tell, and I'm not uh, not arguing for its veracity so much as saying that it's uh, it's an interesting way of looking at things. I'm certainly not going to argue with you on that point. I think the the idea of the model swing or the model technique uh, can create a very large limitation for athletes 
to progress to their best levels. No other person can depict or show what the right way to move is for you. Every single person is unique and we have to remember that. Let's get into the discussion with Phil. Turned professional when he was about the age of 17. He competed in the 2014 and 2018 Olympic Games in the giant slalom and slalom events representing Team Canada. He has been a golfer since the age of 10 or so. And since he was skiing worldwide from the age of 17 to about 28, he has recently gone back into the game of golf and rediscovered his passion for the game. And I think we're going to see that through this discussion. So let's get into it. Phil, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate you taking some time to get us started. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background as a professional skier, and maybe a little bit about your golf journey as well. Thanks, Carter. Thanks for having me here uh, today. I'm excited. A little bit about me. I grew up here in Toronto and was introduced to skiing at a very young age there. And as a child, um, growing up, going up to Collingwood on the weekends, it's kind of just the norm for your folks to put you into the racing programs as a pseudo daycare. And that's really how my journey started as a ski racer. I, it was very organic. And uh, my sisters and I were in the, in the ski racing programs there in Collingwood. And we had uh, a passion for it early and obviously showed that we were capable and willing to go through the ranks to the point where when I was 17 or 18 years old, I made it onto the national ski team, you know, with all sorts of different crazy journeys from the time I was a kid until that age and, and continuous journeys from, from the time I made the team until I retired at uh, 28. So about 10 years on the ski team, which took me to many, many places of the world, many mountains, many big competitions, a couple Olympics, um, some great results and some really horrendous results as well. But uh, again, that's all part of the journey. On that kind of note, what do you feel like were some of the, the characteristics or behaviors or habits that led you to be uh, one of the best in the world at what you did? You know, at a, at a younger development age, I'm going to say in the 12 to 15, 16 year old range, uh, where my commitment level to the sport was growing. My my success was rising and, and it was clear that I had some talent in the sport. I think one of the things that set me apart compared to some of other some of my other competitors uh, at that time was um, a sense of accountability. That being, you know, the financial commitment my parents were putting forward for me to be able to ski race. I was aware of that. I was accountable. I understood that they were making this commitment and at a very young age, I realized that I had to make the commitment as well, that it wasn't just given to me. And, and, you know, I was very, very fortunate and grateful for that opportunity and the opportunities that they provided me from a more pure athletic perspective. There's a lot of things that you have to do physically, whether it's skiing or in the gym or whatever it may be that aren't necessarily things that you want to do. They're not enjoyable. They sometimes hurt. But if you can have this belief that these things that aren't enjoyable are going to make you better, uh, and you truly believe that, then you can use that as motivation in those moments to be better and to ultimately understand that those are going to make you a better athlete down the road. 
as we think about kind of these positive behaviors or characteristics, how would you describe or compare and contrast the the differences that you experience in your training versus the the performance environment? So what was it like when you're in the gym pushing the comfort zones versus getting to the top of a mountain in your tights with negative temperatures and uh, a crazy steep slope mm-hmm. of ice? Yeah, I mean, for the listeners, obviously, there there are some big differences uh, between skiing and golf, given the sort of risk factor that you just uh, described. But from a from a training perspective, there was a moment at some point during my career where I had a coach who was uh, he was a recently retired ex athlete actually, and he was talking to me one day in training, and I had done you know two or three runs in the course just practicing that day and was kind of having similar results over and over again. <clears throat> and he said to me, I've seen you go and make three, four turns that are really, really, really high level. And then the rest of them are low level or, you know, just average. He said, uh, on this next run, pick your four turns and go as fast as you can. I don't care what happens after those. And then the next run after that, let's make it six, six turns. And then the next one after that, let's make it eight turns. And if you can do that over a period of time in a training environment, you start to believe in yourself that you can do that for the entire run, which is, you know, 50, 60 turns. I think that's kind of parallel to golf as well, where in a training environment at the range, we all can hit a great golf shot. I, I, you know, can we hit two in a row? Can we hit 70 in a row for an entire round? You know, that's why we're not professional golfers. So it's about bridging that gap and limiting how many good golf shots can you hit in a row? Same way I was trying to figure out how many good turns can I do in a row to be at my absolute best. Uh, obviously, bringing that to a competition environment is is the most challenging thing to do in any sport. I think the moments where I was able to achieve that uh, and and feel like I skied exceptionally well were in these moments where I was able to let go of the thought of what I did in training to get better, you know, and just kind of be there in that moment with an acceptance of, I could crash and burn here. I could miss a gate. I could have some exterior factor come into play. That's going to throw me off course or, or whatever it is, right? Like there were so many elements in a ski race uh, that can affect you just given the outdoor nature of it and, and the unpredictability of it. Kind of like golf kind of like golf, but at the same time, if you can, you know, be okay with it going sideways, it ultimately, I think, increases your chances for success, which is just kind of this backwards way of thinking. It's very difficult to uh, overcome that. And even at my highest level in ski racing, I, I would never say that I mastered that ability. Uh, right. I don't think that you can ever master it. I think there's always going to be some chatter, right? Um, totally. And it's constantly changing. You can't predict the chatter. And that's kind of the scary part, I think, about it, right? Like, I remember being at some races uh, in Europe where I was a little bit confident but uncomfortable. And then five five minutes before you're set to go down this course, we get a stop start, races on hold, and you hear the helicopter coming in to pick somebody up who had an injury, right? Talk about chatter. right like how do you so in that moment how can you overcome that like one of the guys your your competitors or friends who you know is getting picked up and taken away because something bad happened to him yeah but at the end of the day you're next to do it you're you're next to go yeah so 
it's very, very challenging. And I don't think that I ever had those moments where that something like that happened and I did really, really well. But success in those moments for me was pushing myself through that. Yeah, maybe it wasn't a great result, but I overcame that kind of fear element that came into play. Right. So I'm just kind of thinking here, um, as you're describing this uh, experience, which as I've expressed to you in the past, I can't even imagine standing in those gates at the top of those hills about to propel myself down that slope of ice. It's just the craziest thing to me. But as you're, as you're kind of getting into the gate, what are some of maybe the tools or strategies that you used to help alleviate that chatter and bring a sense of presence to you, whether you're aware of it or not, uh, depending on where you were? Because, you know, as I imagine as a, as a young kind of 17-year-old professional skier, it was just kind of like, all right, here we go. Let's just rip. But as you get into your 20s and you've been around it more and you've seen these helicopter experiences and have been around it and maybe had some of your own failures. Like what were, what were some of the, the tools that you would come back to in creating some ease in that, mm-hmm. in that moment before the ticker goes? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I have two kind of stories or, or things to talk about here. Sweet. I'll go back to like an earlier stage in my development before I made the ski team, I was 16, 17, uh, working with a coach in the U S with this private group. And so we were a group of five or so athletes and we were totally separated from any organization. We just did, did our own thing. We had full autonomy and, and my coach at the time, Bruce was really passionate about the sport. And so our first year with him, he, I don't know if he ever really like outwardly expressed it to us, but he just gave us our schedule for the year and it had us going all over the world uh, and just race after race after race. And I think from Probably like end of November until all the way to the end of April. I think we did upwards of like 75, 80 race starts, which is like unheard of in in our sport. For that age, most people would be doing in the 45 to 50 race starts in in a single season. And, you know, all these other teams and, and coaches were looking at us and shaking their heads and saying, what are you doing? And this is too much. You guys are crazy. And, and sorry, just to backtrack, he was a, he was a nut when it came to physical exercise as well. So all the while while we were doing those races, we were training our tails off, you know, going to the gym, cycling, doing core workouts. And and that goes back to that conversation earlier about putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. And the reason I talk about this is his theory at the time for that season, he wanted us to just race as many times as possible, just to compete so that we could trick our brains I think anyway, to not being fearful or have any nerves. Like we were, it was just another day. We were just racing. Yeah. And it was just what and, you did. It was just what we did. And we didn't really care too much about the results or he didn't. I mean, we did as athletes probably, but he, his goal was long-term success, right? He wanted us to get comfortable in those situations by making us extremely uncomfortable for a mm-hmm. course of about six months. So we had kind of average results, honestly. We didn't really stand out. Moving into the next season, he pulled it back. Then we really started to drive in that like quality, you know, quality race starts, quality training. And that year was, I think, three of us made our national ski teams and the other two went on scholarships to NCAA to ski race. You know, that was our whole team. Then the team kind of went away because we all branched off and did our own thing. But He made us comfortable in uncomfortable situations and the results didn't show immediately, but he had this belief that they would show eventually. 
Yeah. Right? I love so that. that. That was really cool. And then as you got further into my career, I would say the chatter definitely became more and more as I got more successful, which I, I think is natural. Um, you know, your expectations rise. I think as a, as you mature as an athlete and a person, one of the things that works against you is you have all these experience, whether they're negative or positive, um, and you remember them. Whereas when you're young, it just you just go. It doesn't yeah, brush matter. It off. Yeah, you just and so uh, you know, as I got into my mid twenties, that was more challenging, and that's when I started working with a sports psychologist at the time, who who was also a golf guy, and uh, he introduced me to meditation and some practices around that and how I can implement them into my skiing. Uh, one of the things that worked really well for me in, in my probably two most successful seasons, I was taught to pick a spot or, or an item to focus on. And I got in this routine of focusing on this. I, I actually made a spot on my skis. It, it had like a, you know, it was a little item between the lettering. And so for about two months leading up to that season, I was practicing, you know, this focus on this one spot of my skis before every single run, which included, you know, deep breaths, having some internal processes and thoughts about what I wanted to do for that particular run, all while, you know, directing my energy towards this spot of my skis. Mm -hmm. And I truly believe that as I got better at that and went into the competition season, I could trick my mind into when I focused on that spot, it meant go time. It meant time to ski which then led me to not having any other chatter. So right. I think where that helped me a lot was that, you know, in skiing, similar to golf, we ski for, you know, 45 seconds to a minute, and then we get on the chairlift for 10 minutes. Yeah. Right. Similar to golf where you hit your shot, you have to walk for a few minutes, get to your next shot. Some people have the capacity to stay zoned for the entire time. I wasn't one of those people. I, I wanted to check out. So I would do my run, reflect, check out, get on the chairlift, tell jokes with my buddies, you know, tell stories, enjoy the scenery, whatever it may be, and then get back to the start gate of a training run or a race. And then you have to turn it on, right? You have to refocus. And so that's where that spot on my skis came back into play. As soon as I looked down, I did my, my breathing and I focused on that spot. My brain started to understand it's go time. And I, awesome. and I was ready to go. Very cool there. And there's, uh, there's so many cool parallels between two wildly different activities, but uh, the foundational parallels when it comes down to it are, are, are so cool, right? Uh, the pushing comfort zones, the progression of development, and this idea of process and the ability to turn it on when we have gaps between our execution, which is, which is crazy cool to, to hear I, I about. From, uh, I think from like a technical side too, there's, there's parallels where, you know, there's no real right answer. Um, yeah, there's like infinite number of techniques. If you watched a ski race and you know what you're looking at, everybody looks significantly different and has their own style. And it's the same when, when I watch golf, you know, I'm not a golf pro, but I can see like, you know, Bubba Watson's swing is different than Tiger Woods' swing, but they get the same result on any yeah. given day, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, the, the technique one is always a fascinating discussion, um, I think, in any sport, right? And I definitely appreciate uh, in golf a technique, and I, I can only imagine in skiing a technique has something to do with the success of going down the hill faster. But 
you know, it is one of the many skills that are required to get that lowest score or fastest time. Right. As you, as you said, there's, there's so many other things. Like when you get into that gate, it doesn't matter how good your technique is. It's how are you going to push off and, and stay with it for that 45 seconds to a minute of absolutely intense uh, experience. So mm-hmm. really appreciate some of those insights about your, your ski journey there, man. What, uh, what about golf really kind of fires you up? What are, what are those values that make you want to tee it up with the boys on, uh, on the weekend? We obviously just talked about some of those parallels. So I think that's a natural, you know, affiliation that I enjoy. It's that you can always get better. It's that feeling of always being able to get better. There is no perfection in this sport, regardless of if you shoot your best score, uh, I can come up the next day and shoot my worst round of the year. Uh, which makes you then want to go back out and try and shoot your best score again or, or whatever it may be. The social environment, you know, I have some of my closest friends now are, are from the golfing community. Uh, I think that it's a sport that lasts a lifetime, very similar to skiing. You can do it with your family for many, many years. Uh, that That's something that attracts me. You know, the competition element for me coming out of a, a really high intensity sport uh, and, you know, life of competition, I can still feel that when I go on the golf course, you know, whether it's just playing a fun nine hole match with a buddy or a more serious, let's say club event, or maybe a tournament or whatever, right. That, that those juices are something that I seek uh, and golf's one of the only kind of recreational sports that you can do and get those juices flowing, like truly get them, get them flowing. Right. Like, you know, I can go play pickup hockey, but at the end of the day, I don't, you know, I don't really care if if our team wins or not. Right. But in an individual sport like golf, I can go out and Hey Carter, like, you know, our our pride's on the line or we got five bucks on the line. We got a beer on the line after the round. Right. Like all of a sudden, like you're flowing and and you want to try and, you know, have that, killer instinct to, to take down your buddy or, or whoever it may be that you're playing that day or the field. Yeah. Yeah. Easily be able to get those juices flowing on uh, Tuesday morning uh, against <laughs> Brownie and Lawton. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> but there is something there about golf that uh, provokes those, uh, those experiences. I'd love to hear, um, or if you could share a, a golf experience, call it your best golf experience. Sure. Yeah. A couple, a couple come to mind. You know, going back to my career, we we were fortunate enough to ski in New Zealand in the summertime there, winter. So uh, there was, you know, a, a whole crew of athletes from different countries and and quite a few skiers or golfers, actually. They're, they're I think, just because... Everybody's a golfer. Yeah, everybody's, everybody's a golfer. A golfer. Don't, some so, just don't know so it. So New Zealand, I loved that because we would go, we were staying near a golf course and we would ski in the mornings and then we had the ability to go play golf in the afternoon. And that's just like... I mean, what a day, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's that's uh, arguably a dream. Yeah, some beautiful golf courses down there too. Uh, I'd like to go back for sure. Another one that comes to mind is a, is a trip that I took with you. Actually, we went, uh, did a road trip there over to Michigan, spent a few days there at Arcadia Bluffs and, and you know, what a phenomenal property, an absolute challenge. I was, I was pretty fresh to starting my journey back to, uh, getting better and improving at golf after about a 10 year hiatus. And that type of challenge, I really wasn't prepared for, but I don't think any of us were, (laughs) but that said it was, uh, it was, uh, what a weekend and 
we tipped it up. What was it that first day? Like raining sideways and, and like four or five degrees. I mean, it was atrocious, but that, that, but uh, everybody was ready to go. Right. Like nobody. We did it. We pulled up to the T and it's just absolutely fogged. Cause at this place, the, the fog comes in and off the lake. We're standing on this tee and we were just like 300 yards away from the clubhouse and we can't even see it. And we just kind of, ah, we'll just hit some balls out that way. Five minutes later, the fog moves and it's like, well, one, we're not finding our balls. And two, we weren't even (laughs) close to the fairway. We were trying to look at the scorecard, trying to figure out what direction to hit off the tee. Yeah. (laughs) Didn't, uh, didn't work so well. So that was a fun trip. And, uh, you know, and then after that, it's like, just being a member at Markland and, you know, getting to take, take part of some of the club events, some of our own organized events, that competition element. Those are the days that I, I really enjoy when, win or lose. I think that those are probably my most fun moments on the golf course. Currently. I, I love, I love those competitions. Beautiful. Would you say you have a, a, any particular goals or a goal for yourself with your, with your golf game? Yes, of course. In the short term, you know, we've been, you and I have been working together on some stuff. And I'd say in the last two years, as far as like my performance goes on the golf course, I've made some pretty drastic improvements, whether I choose to recognize them on a given day or not. That's another story. But I've been working towards, I want to say, you know, I I talk about the competition part of it a lot, but I, I also think that I'm ready to sort of almost scale back on that a little bit and find a way to get out on the golf course and not have to compete to enjoy it. Yeah. Um, that's what, that's one of my sh- kind of short-term personal goals. You know, I, I still want to be involved in those competitions, but uh, I also want to be able to just go out and walk and play and, you know, not yeah. worry about what, what the outcome is. Long-term golf goals. I just want to stay involved in the sport, right? Like I want to have that for a long time for, for yeah, my life. Play forever. I don't have any performance goals or, you know, outcomes that I want to achieve. I think those will come and go as they do in the sport. Yeah. Sweet. One last question. What do you think is uh, the master skill for any golfer? The ability to bounce back. Okay. It's that like limit of compounded errors when something goes sideways, whether it was in your control or out of your control, can you rebound from that? Right on. That's uh, no matter uh, your ability level too, right? Like if you're scratch, if you're 15 handicap. Yeah. Yeah. That's the beauty of the game. Everybody's at their own kind of level, but it's the same experience. And uh, the bouncing back one is an interesting one, which I've uh, debated with clients over the years. And I've been kind of gearing towards, there's almost this no, there is no idea of bouncing back. It's uh, right. It, we're, we're already a victim to the the natural ebb and flow of the game once we tee it up there is a continual coming and going and of good and bad and whatever so it's uh the the acceptance of that almost could uh could alleviate the bounce back but i think the the idea of that as a skill is um and cultivating the skills to manage that experience i would agree with you right it's almost it's almost like if you're good at that then you're not trying to do it yeah. You're not trying to bounce back. It's just, you just are playing golf. Yeah. Like you, cause <laughs> like you, you I just totally know you're agree with you. Yeah. So well, I think it's like that realistic, uh, you know, having a realistic mindset too, about what, what can happen in a given golf round. Right. Like, absolutely. Yeah. I think you need to be honest with yourself. You know, if you're averaging whatever score you're averaging, which spits out your handicap 
and you're all of a sudden expecting you're going to go out there and not make bogeys and a bogey is going to, you know, make you angry or upset and compound into more bogeys. I think that's just ridiculous. You know, it, 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 it does. <laughs> it does in, in our discussion, it seems ridiculous, but it happens. You know, you've been you've been around the the golf experience enough, yeah. uh, and, I, and I'm not immune to it. I'm not trying to say I'm immune <laughs> to it. I'm still learning, but yeah, we're, you know, we're all learning. You know, it's it's crazy how we can uh, shoot ourselves in the foot. I think, like from my own golf experience, something that that I improved that's something that I improved on a lot this year. And working, you know, with you and some of your concepts was getting through the front nine and you know having a really average to below average score, but but not fretting over it and just carrying on. And then you look back at the end of 18, it's like, Oh, my score actually was very, very solid today. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it can come and go. We, we don't unfortunately have control on the timing of, no. of many things, but we can definitely control ourselves along the, along the journey there. So really cool, man. Last little segment here to finish us up. Uh, we call it rapid fire, quick question, quick answer. Seem easy enough. Yep. Beautiful. I'll do my best. Cool. Starting us off, you hitting a cut or a draw? Cut. Glove Trending or no glove? Slice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, glove always, except for putting. Hybrid or driving iron? Driving iron. Music or no music? Music. Yeah. Grip and rip or tactical conservative? Grip. Grip, grip and it. rip. Bushnell or feel? I've struggled with this one. I've I've practiced with both, but I think Bushnell. Links or Parkland? Parkland. Sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. Wicked. That was uh, that was a great discussion, man. Uh, really appreciate the energy and the insights into your journey as a world class skier, an avid golfer, and connecting and making some parallels there. I think was great, and our listeners are going to. Uh, love to see the the similarities in that and uh, look forward to uh, sharing this with the world. Yeah. Thanks for having me, uh, Carter. And and uh, look forward to get back out on the golf course with you this summer. Absolutely. Can't wait, my man. Well, that was a, a great discussion there with Phil and would love to hear from you, John, and what you thought were uh, some cool takeaways and themes that you kind of pulled out of that discussion. The interview with Phil, uh, more than anything to me anyway, points out three core themes. Um, and these are obviously themes that have become, um, you know, like it or not for us, just because we keep getting um, bombarded with these themes, we, we can't help but start coaching from this place. And, and number one, I thought the most esoteric version of these themes was his idea of a sense of debt. And when we asked him about motivation and, and sort of where it's all like, why, why would you do all of this? How did you get to this high level? And what, is, what was it like? And he said, uh, well, I was motivated because of a sense of debt to others. And, mm -hmm. and that, that became a really important sort of motivating piece for him and a sort of raison d'etre, as I would say, in my home province. Or um, if you were religious about it, you might say your, your spiritual um, meaning. You know, like this is this is why I'm here, uh, because I have a gift and I'm going to pursue that to its greatest extent. And I know uh, one of one of my core mentors, Fred Shoemaker, you know, speaks of that quite deliberately in his presentations. You know, we all have a gift. We have a gift for learning. And your job when you perform in sports and athletics is to is to explore that gift and to try to learn as best as you can. You know, and, and that's a, I find a cool approach and a cool motivating force uh, for the sport, which is very different than I was just trying to get a gold medal. 
um, that that's a, that's a slightly different thing. Although you know, the gold medal might come. I might meet Tiger Woods, but but I'll I'll do it the right way. You know, not not by kind of pulling on his shirt sleeve on Wednesday and just to say, look look where I am. Look, I'm about to play in this event. Look how good I am. As opposed to oh my God, I just missed a short putt and I won. That's so cool. I'm so grateful for this. You know, the the second I guess pragmatic piece uh, that we use on a daily basis. Uh, which was referenced a lot by Phil, I think, is the idea of delayed gratification and that he uh, he would argue, I think, that most high-level athletes have a special way of viewing adversity, a unique leveraging capacity uh, where they're able to see an obstacle on the path as an awesome opportunity to practice hurdling as opposed to a difficulty that is means that they have to choose another route or might have to lumber over the thing, you know? So instead of facing it and going with slumped shoulders, oh my God, I can't believe there's another obstacle. Instead, they say, wow, sweet. Another thing I can jump over. Um, and he, he described that, I thought, really, really interestingly and well. Whether that's innate or learned um, is a debate for another episode. But, uh, but certainly he had that skill at some point somehow. Um, and then he found a coach that decided to put a lot, as many obstacles as he could to see how high his, he could jump. Um, and that nice, I guess, coincidence or serendipity, um, led him to the, you know, 10 years national level player, multiple Olympics. I mean, this is, this is a very, very high level athlete. To me, the third point that I thought was really salient in the, um, in his tools for performance, this idea when you were talking about how did you use management of skill and state to perform at your highest level. And he spoke about, um, he didn't use this language, but he, he spoke about anchors. Um, the idea of using visual cues that are linked to a specific state that allow us to get into the zone quickly, as it were, to take a subway ride to a new destination. Um, and so you could be at the top of the hill and hear a helicopter, but if you look down at the letter S in your uh, Slazenger ski, um, that triggers you back to all the training you've done on the beautiful, serene days where you just enjoy carving through the turns and moving at a high pace, something that's become sort of habituated in his body. Um, and so those types of, I guess, programming or conditioning tools that high-level athletes use where they incorporate breath and visualization and allow them to transport to a new state and therefore be able to access the skill that they've been practicing. I thought that was a cool sort of pragmatic piece to take out of it. And I think that idea of anchoring is, um, you know, a very, very common in the literature of sports psychology as well, particularly, you know, in the cognitive therapy type side of things um, where, where we can, you know, intentionally transform a state by focusing on a, on a nice memory effectively. Yeah. The strategy of using an anchor um, I found pretty fascinating as that's a, a great one we can use out on the golf course as well. And very, very popular in the mindful community as a, as a meditation practice, both your other points were, were great as well. And I thought pretty cool takeaways too. the, the sense of debt can absolutely be a great motivator. Uh, as long as it's kind of perceived in the right way, I suppose. One one last piece that was, I think, subtle when we sort of isolated golf for him and said, so what is it about golf, though, that's so cool? I think he said something that's been echoed quite a bit in the last weeks for me. He said, uh, our closest friends are the ones we play golf with. And uh, I thought that was interesting. And it's a neat way of looking at it, particularly as you age and you move on in life and so on. And, and you know, things get in the way of, you know, going to hang out with your buddies and watching the game or uh, going and shooting some hoops or whatever the ways we used to hang out when we were younger. All of a sudden, those those don't really happen anymore, except for 
in the landscape of golf. You know, it becomes a place where we can all kind of hang out. And, and it's interesting how it seems to boil down our friendships to the essence, you know, and then all of a sudden you end up playing with, you know, your real close friends um, often and you make excuses to play golf together so that you can hang out together or in reverse, you play golf enough that you eventually become close friends. But either way, sort of the net reward is that you end up, you know, doing these shot experiences with people that mean a lot to you. And uh, I thought that was cool for him to kind of pick that out of the game of golf for an ultra competitive guy who's a world-class athlete, you know, to kind of see that subtlety in it um, was kind of refreshing to hear as well. Absolutely. And I think it brings light to many of the themes that we've been talking about over the past uh, four or five weeks here with the Pure Golf Collective and celebrating those intrinsic values to why it is we sneak out of the house and uh, tee it up with uh, our buddies and or whoever it may be. Anyways, guys, hope you enjoyed the listen. Check us out over at Instagram at Pure Golf Collective. Make sure to give us the follow. And until next week, keep celebrating all that is pure in the game we love. If you like the show, please subscribe and tell a friend or write a review. We look forward to continuing this journey with you all.